Oh, hi there. Today we've got a bonus episode for you with Dr. Greg Boll. In episode seven of season two, we spoke with Greg about some common ways we misunderstand what evolution is. And so if you haven't heard that episode, go back and have a listen. And in that episode, Greg also shared with us that he was recently diagnosed with a terminal cancer diagnosis. In this episode, we're talking with Greg about this diagnosis. We'll cover what cancer is, how we treat it, and also about his experiences navigating this diagnosis. I'm not going to lie to you. This is the type of episode that will make you remember that you have emotions. And while we don't shy away from the sad stuff, this episode is so much more than that. And I hope you'll join us as we learn more with and from Dr. Greg Boll about balancing the ups and downs and embracing the life you live. We are so grateful to Greg for sharing this space with us, for his friendship and mentorship. We hope you enjoy this episode. Greg, you shared with us your recent diagnosis with cancer of the bile duct, and you also shared that this is your third diagnosis with cancer. So to start off this conversation about cancer, how we treat it, your experiences with it, can we can we start with what is cancer? Sure, absolutely. I, um, I've had, yeah, three or, three or four different kinds of cancer, which uh, my friend's reaction was, stop hogging all the cancer. <laughs> <laughs> Collect them all. That's the only way we can deal with these kind of things, right? Yeah. A little bit of humor, a little bit of dark humor, a little bit of crying, laughter, all mixed in together. Yeah. So, so cancer is something that I uh, actually would teach my students about at UBC in my first year class on ecology, evolution, and genetics. And it's interesting because I taught about it uh, just in terms of the cell cycle, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, and what is cancer? But then after I was diagnosed with my first kind of cancer in 2013, it became much more of a permanent part of, uh, of what I taught. And so I guess I just want to start by saying this is a subject that I like being completely open and frank about. I think that too many people are sort of scared of cancer or don't know what it is. And so that makes it even, even scarier. And so I think just kind of talking about it like any other topic uh, educates people and, uh, and hopefully you'll learn a little bit of interesting science along the way. So most cells go through uh, a cell cycle. So it's a number of stages the cell goes through in duplicating itself. So in growth, when we were first born, development, um, all of that requires dividing cells. Or if you injure yourself, you need to make new cells to replace the ones that were lost. So those dividing cells um, come about through the cell cycle. And cancer is simply when that gets out of control. So when cells are dividing when they shouldn't be. And so there's usually a lot of different checks on the cell cycle, making sure that everything is okay. And so if a cell is not okay, if it's replicating when it shouldn't, or it's lining its chromosomes up incorrectly, usually the cell will put a stop to it. So in fact, cancer is not just one single problem with the cell cycle. It's usually many problems combined. Um, so we talked a little bit about mutations in our last episode. Mutations are just random changes in the DNA sequence as that uh, DNA and that cell is being replicated. 
So a typical cancer might involve many different mutations so that, first of all, it's growing when it shouldn't be. Second of all, it doesn't allow the cell to stop it. Third of all, cells can go from being benign to malignant, which means they've moved to a different place. And that's the kind of cancer that I have right now. Um, it started in the bile duct and the pancreas region, but has moved or metastasized to the liver. So about 60% of my liver function is now gone due to the, the cancer cells. They found a happy home to, uh, to grow there. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. You get mutations, accidents in the cell uh, replicating. It replicates when it shouldn't, and that's how we get a tumor. Benign tumors aren't causing too much trouble, but malignant tumors are a big problem. Not only can they grow, they can travel, and they can start to disrupt major organs, which is where it becomes dangerous. So then there's actually quite a few things that cancerous cells need to have going for them. They need to be able to replicate. They need to be able to move around. Uh, they need to be able to evade your immune system. It's not just you have a cancerous cell and all of a sudden you have cancer. And it's different in each kind of body tissue or body organ that you can think about. So different mutations will cause different changes. So that's why there's not really one thing called cancer. There are many, many, many things that we call cancer. And blood cancer is different from lymph cancer. And that's different from breast cancer. And that's different from skin cancer. Yeah. And there's actually a cancer that is incredibly interesting. It should be a whole episode is the um, contagious cancers spread oh. by Tasmanian devils, right? They get those, the, the face tumors and then they get aggressive and then they can actually spread the tumors uh, among each other. Through physical contact. Yeah, crazy. Through physical contact. That's right. Yeah. Greg, with cancer, of course, it's been a big problem for humans uh, over a course of many, many years. I don't even know how far back we can go to sort of like chart to uh, chart when cancers first started to affect humans. So generally, you know, where are we at with trying to to treat cancer? Because we know that there is no sort of like cure for it, but we can treat it. And so where, where are we at with that uh, right now in 2021? So first, let's throw out the idea that we're not the only species that get cancer. Lots of other species get cancer as well. And there are cancers that infect trees. And there are cancers that affect, you know, marine organisms, but you mentioned how far are we along in dealing with cancer or curing cancer? Um, we have cured some kinds of cancer. I think I, that's, that's a fair statement to say in that we have the drugs that can allow people to live and can even make the cancer completely go into remission. And that's sort of what I would call a cure. And so my first type of cancer I was diagnosed with um, was Hodgkin lymphoma. And that's a cancer of the lymph nodes, part of the circulatory system. And I had very aggressive chemotherapy for that. And then it was gone. The chemotherapy worked in this case to send that cancer into remission. And my oncologist, my cancer doctors tell me I'm no more likely to develop lymphoma than anybody else who hasn't had it in the past. So that's what, that's what I would call a cure. And that's fantastic that we have some kinds of cancers that we have cured. Other kinds, um, we have drugs that can help deal with them. Uh, the second kind of cancer that I was diagnosed with was a uh, leukemia. And normally when you hear leukemia, you think, wow, that's really dangerous. But there's lots of different kinds of blood cancers that fall under the, the range of leukemia. And I was lucky enough to have one that can just be treated with a drug. And so I take a pill every night and it reduces the number of these cancerous cells. 
And if you want to really nerd out about how that's caused, that's due to a translocation in chromosomes. So we could always we could always come back to that if you want. So that's something that wasn't necessarily cured, but it's under control. And then my third kind of cancer is the bile duct cancer that has become metastatic and moved to the liver and possibly other places as well. And that's a cancer, a family of cancers, pancreatic cancer, bile duct cancer, that we do not have a very good hold on in terms of we, we meaning science. And so most of the care for that is palliative, which means that we just try and, I say we like I'm the one being doing the treatment, but I'm the one being treated as well. Scientists and, and health workers uh, just try and improve the quality of the patient's life as much as they can, but there's no curing it with the tools that we have today. And so that's the situation I'm in right now. My doctors can only guess how long I have. It depends a lot on how I react to the chemotherapy and it's still early days in that. Uh, I've been through two months, so four cycles of my chemotherapy treatment. Uh, and, and things are actually looking pretty promising in terms of keeping the cancer at bay, maybe even shrinking some of the tumors, but it will never stop them and they'll just keep coming back. And so, something on the order of uh, six to 12 months, you know, could take a bad turn and just head down from there. And that's going to be uh, the end of my life. And so that's a kind of cancer that falls into the third category, one that is not curable given our current technology. And getting back to your, your recent diagnosis, I mean, part of that was just figuring out where the cancer was. Oh, yeah. So you, you mentioned that this is a cancer of the bile ducts, or we talk about pancreatic. What was that process like? How did they find out where the cancer was? Because that's important to treat it, right? Super important. They Before they started any serious treatment, they needed to know where it was coming from. And so it first started with strange readings on blood work I was having done. So because I had two types of cancer, my doctors and my oncologists were keeping an eye on that sort of thing. And so various things they were measuring in my blood the numbers were, were kind of out of whack. They were heading in the wrong directions. And that could be due to a number of different reasons. But um, as soon as that happened, they threw me over to the BC Cancer Center. And I had a team of oncologists trying to work this out because they didn't know where it was. So actually, I saw a gastrointestinal oncologist. I saw a lung oncologist. Uh, I saw a, like a colon specialist. Lots of different specialists trying to figure out what's going on. And one of the big, most important tools they use to figure out where the cancer was is a CT scan. So a CT scan is kind of like an X-ray, but it's an X-ray that shows where the cells are most actively uh, growing or most actively uh, physiologically. So they put a little dye in you that, that kind of kind of marks those cells. They stick you in these big tubes that whirls around you and uh, they get a pretty good 3D picture of what's going on in your body and where these uh, rogue cells are. And so uh, they spotted the ones in the liver right away mm -hmm. because they're small tumors, but there were lots of them. And so the first couple of weeks, I was trying to get my doctors to tell me how many. And they were saying things like, well, we call it like a constellation or a conglomerate. I'm like, yeah. how many tumors do you need <laughs> to get a constellation or to get a conglomerate? And they'd say, well, things like, well, there's a, there's a higher uh, volume of them in the right side of the liver than the left. And I'm like, uh, you know, that still is not helping me. So finally, we really just got down to discussing and looking at the CT scan. And they could tell me what size they were. And they could tell me roughly how many. And it was in the hundreds. And so that was pretty scary. Mm -hmm. So the next step was to figure out where they're coming from. Because when they did a biopsy of the liver 
cells, they realized it was not liver cancer. And this is pretty, pretty clever of a cancer biologist. They can figure out from the physical form of the cell and also the, I guess, sort of chemicals that it can produce, the enzymes and things, where its origin was. And it was very clear to them pretty early on that it didn't originate in the liver. So then the hunt was on to find where the origination point was. And they had it pretty quickly down to the gastrointestinal system, uh, esophagus, stomach, um, intestines, and then things that connect to that, like the pancreas and the bile duct. Um, And then I had endoscopies, where they stick a camera down your throat and up from the other end as well. Not at the same time, luckily. (laughs) (laughs) And... And so they, they observe physically, like observe with their camera where, where they kind of see, see potential cancers and then they can biopsy those. So the, they eliminated a lot of the gastrointestinal tract because of that. And so that kind of nailed it down to uh, all the clues pointing at either the pancreas or the area surrounding the pancreas. And once we kind of got those pieces together, and this was fairly quick, these guys were operating you know, on the, on, over the course of just a couple of weeks. That's when we kind of put two and two together that pancreatic cancer or bile duct cancer is usually a pretty wicked one, a pretty nasty one that kills a lot of people. And because it's already in the liver, that means by definition, it's stage four. And stage four is never where you want to find the cancer because that means it's already grown. It's already spread. And it's not just a matter of taking out a single tumor with like radiation or surgery. It's a matter of trying to stop the replication of all of them. So we were talking about, you know, cancer or these rapidly dividing cells. They can potentially move to other areas of the body. You've experienced three types of cancer. How do we treat it? I mean, if there, there are these different forms, they can affect different areas of the body. What, what do we have <laughs> in our arsenal to manage cancer and to treat cancer? Yeah. Our, our arsenal is a good way of thinking about it. I also think about it, how many tools do we have in our tool belt to try and deal with this kind of thing. And luckily, there's more and more over time as cancer biologists kind of kind of work this out. They add more tools and they make the tools they have even, even better. The reason I mentioned tools is uh, a lot of people use the words of like warfare, like a fight or you're fighting cancer or you're winning or losing or you're destroying or something like that. And, you know, uh, people find that problematic for an, a number of different reasons. Fair. Uh, people that are going through cancer, not all of them, but some of them don't really like to use those, those warfare kind of analogies. But people not undergoing cancer, often that's what they hear. And so that's what they repeat. And so I, I don't blame anybody for saying that, but you know, it's worth asking somebody whether they want to talk about whether they're fighting cancer or not, because I'm not doing the fighting. <laughs> it's, it's my chemotherapy. So that's one of these tools that we're talking about. And there's another couple of important ones. Uh, radiation is an important tool that can zap a specific area and destroy those cells. And more and more immunotherapy. So using the host immune system to try and train it to attack these cancer cells is becoming a more important way of dealing with cancer. And then I guess in the future, um, we could look towards things like uh, genetic engineering and changing you know, whole genes or genomes to try and deal with this kind of thing as well, or just finding it out ahead of time much, much faster and much sooner um, what's going to happen. Um, so an oncologist will consider each of those kinds of tools and figure out what's most appropriate for which kinds of cancer. So radiation is not appropriate for me. Neither is surgery. That's another one that I should have mentioned. Um, unfortunately, they have no immunotherapy, um, at least in the treatment stage. They have some they're working on in the trial stage 
for my kind of cancer. But the tried and true one, the one that has proved the most reliable, is using chemicals to, to fight these cells. So that's chemotherapy. Chemo is just chemical and therapy is, is the treatment using these chemicals. And so for my lymphoma, I was given very strong chemotherapy and I didn't end up reacting too well to it. I had to stop before the end of it and I was in the hospital with other complications. <laughs> I, had, I had blood clots and I had uh, pneumonia. And uh, so it's, it's really, it's like, mm. I think of it like carpet bombing or Agent Orange. You're just wiping everything out. But because the kind of cancer that I have is not curable, they're using a palliative chemotherapy, which is a little more gentle on the body has fewer side effects and less severe side effects, but is really only designed to either slow the cells down or if you're in the lucky 50%, uh, actually shrink the cells, the tumor cells a little bit. And so that can hold things off for longer. And so some people can last years um, with this kind of palliative care. Um, you know, other people, the majority of people, it's less than a year. So you mentioned side effects. With this palliative treatment, uh, what kind of side effects have you experienced so far? Oh boy, so many, so many fun ones. Um, they separate them into the major ones and the minor ones, and it's literally like pages that they give you of potential side effects for these oh, different no. kinds of chemotherapy. Now, my chemotherapy is involves four different drugs currently, and there was a fifth one that I used to use but was replaced. And out of those four drugs, three of them are actively trying to stop um, duplicating cells. And one of them is just trying to support one of those other drugs. So really right now I'm dealing with three kinds of major chemotherapy. So the side effects, the major ones you really want to look out for are things like, um, uh, uh, fainting, fever, collapsing, extreme diarrhea, which can lead to dehydration, um, so those are the those are sort of the nastier side of things. Mm. Um, but the l less nasty sides, the ones that mostly I've been dealing with, weird things like cold sensitivity. Like probably a lot of people know when the feeling of when you touch ice or snow, your fingers tingle a little bit. Mm. Now multiply that by like 100, and it's like when you pull a jug of milk out of the fridge. So it like feels like my hands are on fire when I touch things that are slightly cold. It's a weird one. Well, and I should I, I should also say as a, as a spoiler, I mean, we're good friends yep. and we've chatted a lot about this already, but I know that you also enjoy ice cream. I suffer from my love of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I just eat it anyway. <laughs> and also the cold um, sensitivity decreases throughout the cycle. So I have a, I have a two week cycle where, where I'll get chemotherapy, which is actually um, as we're recording this, it's a Monday and I'll be getting chemotherapy on Thursday of this week. Uh, and then, so that's when you get the biggest side effect. Would, you, would today be an ice cream day or no? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Today would definitely be an ice cream day. Okay, great. It's the end of the yeah. cycle. That's why I'm recording today. I'm feeling pretty pretty good overall today because it's been almost two weeks since I've had my last bout of chemotherapy. So, Greg, you're talking about, of course, you know, how uh, these treatments are affecting your body, you know, but how are they affecting you mentally? Like, how are you, how are you doing? Like, how are you feeling about all this? And of course, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big diagnosis and it's a pretty big to think about, you know, of course, like almost every waking minute of, of your life now. Not every waking minute, but you'll, you'll have a break and you'll be feeling good. You'll have a nap or whatever you wake up and like, Oh yeah, I'm dying of cancer. That kind of sucks. So I do get breaks from it mentally and I, and I still enjoy things and I have fun and I watch a lot of, a lot of great movies and I go for walks with, with great friends like you guys. And, uh, 
I uh, spend as much time as I can uh, with my wife, my lovely wife, Angie O'Neill, who also teaches at, at UBC in biology. So it's oh, a big question, right? There's a lot of pros and there's a lot of cons. I'll just start by saying any given day, I don't know how I'm going to feel. And that's because sometimes it's the side effects that are driving me up the wall. Sometimes it's the, you know, the threat of imminent death that's kind of bearing down on me. And sometimes it's just, I'm really sick of being sick. <laughs> Every day I'm, I'm sick of something else. And so, yeah, so... Mm -hmm. One rule in our house is we just let the emotions come yeah, whenever they need to. I think that's a good rule of thumb. Generally, should all be able to feel our emotions. We think of controlling our emotions. Yeah, but we don't control them. They can, they, they're controlling us. They're the ones that, that just wash over us without any, yeah, without any control most of the time. So Greg, you were talking about how you yourself are managing managing the diagnosis emotionally, what, what has that meant for you? How do you go about and how do you process that? And how do you, how do you deal with it? Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a big, it's a big question with lots of, lots of elements to it, but an important one, obviously I'm a scientist. <laughs> I break things down into lists. I'm sure you guys have no idea what I'm talking about, but, uh, <laughs> but my first category would be like my external support versus my internal support. So my external support has been amazing, like my friends, my colleagues, my family. But, but setting that aside, what about me, myself, my internal um, ways of dealing with this? I had been through cancer diagnosis twice before, as we talked about before. So I was a little bit ready for it, a little bit used to it. Um, I think that, at least for me, whenever, when I got cancer, I was thinking, oh, when's it coming back? I think that's pretty common too for a lot of people. Even the doctors say, no, 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 you're fine, you're fine. But it's always like, yeah, yeah, right. It's coming back. When's it coming back? And so I was almost prepared for that. I was almost like expecting it in a way. You know, not hoping for it, but, but a little bit of expectation in the back of my mind. So we learned about the diagnosis and stages. And each stage was a little more serious than, than the last one. And sort of when we got to the actual prognosis, so I think the diagnosis is, is, is what you have, the prognosis is what is this going to mean, um, of like 10 to 12 months. And that was a couple of months ago, by the way, so that number's going down. I was able to take that in, but it was a big step. But strangely enough, what really hit me almost, I think it was in that same meeting with my, my oncologist, was I said, okay, how many cycles of chemo am I going to go through? So that's what I did with lymphoma. It's like, oh, you're going to do eight cycles. And she's like... All, all of them, the rest of your life, like you won't stop. So that, that kind of put it into perspective. <laughs> I'll be doing chemo and I'll be doing injections, you know, until, yeah. until I can't. I can imagine that that was really hard news to hear. It's, and, then, and then the effect that it has on my wife and my family. Yeah, in some ways I find it harder to see their reaction than my reaction. It's like I've figured out ways that I can deal with it, but you know, to them, they're going to have to keep continuing on. And you and my friends, right, are going to have to keep continuing on. So in many ways, I think it's rougher for them than it is for me. But I've decided to look at it a number of ways. And, you know, I, it's not that I'm not scared. It's not that I'm not, you know, feeling anything about it. But I've decided to look at both the positives and the negatives. So there's some pretty clear negatives. We talked about the side effects. We talked about the effect on family and friends. Um, but the positives aren't necessarily something that you think of right away. 
And when I think about the fact that everyone's going to die, as far as we know, unless we get, you know, Elysium level sci-fi brains and cyborgs, let's just go with the operating idea that all living things die. Uh, you know, Michael's going to die. Kaylee's going to die. Everybody you know is going to die. It, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing to think about, but it's true. Yeah. And so if I think of that, I'm going to die. It's kind of nice to have some control over it. I have an idea of when. I have an idea of what I want to do before then. And it really adds to every day and every moment. I'm not just saying that I'm trying to like finish a bucket list or do some grand thing. I'm just saying that that I can appreciate these days a bit more knowing they're not going to last. Mm. So having that control and that viewpoint over it really puts a major positive spin on it that helps some of the negative spin in the opposite direction. That's one of the ways I deal with it. Is there another way that Dr. Greg Bowl approaches this? Because, you know, I think there's one thing that Kaylee and I both appreciate about you, Greg, is that you are delightfully nerdy and <laughs> are willing to do things like dress up as Darwin and and talk about evolution in this very, you know, interesting and, and weird way. And here you are, you know, you know, talking to us about something that, you know, a lot of people probably would not be comfortable talking about, you know, where do you get that perspective about what you're going through and how are you able to sort of like tap into that? Or is that something that you just unconsciously kind of like, well, this is, this is me, you know, Dr. Greg Bull is still you. And this is how you, how you deal with things is to kind of analyze it, make lists as you say, and and talk about it. Yeah. I think it's, 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 it's in many ways a very conscious process actually, rather than an unconscious process. It's the way I've lived my life, hopefully to, to try and be honest and open and to share. And if I think something's cool or if I've learned something other people don't know, I just love to share it. And that's essentially what teaching is, right? Science communication. That's what it's all about. And so it's not that I'm, evoking science communication or my teaching skills to apply them to this. It's just, they're a part of me. <laughs> so if I'm going through something big or th something small, this is one of the ways in which I, I process it, in which I deal with it. And I, and I hope, and I think I have pretty good evidence that uh, a lot of people appreciate that being open and honest and straightforward about it. I decided like that almost, almost on day one, right? We went home had a good cry. And then I said, you know, I want to find the right time, but I want to tell everybody. I don't want this to be hidden. And you're right. This is a thing that, that several generations ago was really not something people did, talk, talking about cancer or diagnosis. It's just like it, people were almost scared that if, if you talk about it, then it might happen to you or happen to someone you love. So you just don't talk about it. And there's still a lot of people today that absolutely don't want to talk about it at all. And in fact, what's really sad is some people don't want to talk about it so much that they don't seek treatment in time. And so there are people that have died because they didn't want to talk about it. So that puts it in a bit of perspective. So I, yeah, it's, 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 it's how I operate. It's what I do. I like to share and I like to teach people what I know. I'm learning a lot about cancer and how it's affecting me. Well, and I think one of the things that has been really nice about you sharing it is like, this is at a time 
oh, hi, everyone. It's a global pandemic. Oh, yeah, that's that's fun, too. <laughs> and it's difficult <laughs> to get outside, right? It makes seeing family and friends so much more challenging. Has that added a added another layer of challenge for you, is navigating it during this pandemic? It's hard enough to deal with the pandemic, as everybody knows. And it's very emotionally taxing. And it, and it involves, you know, threat to life, right? Like like death. COVID kills people. So it's not entirely dissimilar to what I'm going on, just at a, at a different scale, at a different level for different people. So adding on top of that, what was already difficult to deal with um, has made it made it much more difficult to deal with. Um, and mainly it's the, it's the contact. You know, I just want to hug people. I just want to go and, and hang out and have a party and, and do wacky things and talk about science and, and, and you know, go in front of an audience. And, uh, and yeah, we can't do that. And so, so I have to look for, for other things to be able to, uh, to help deal with those things. Um, we were talking a little while ago about how people react to the fact that not only I have cancer, but that it's terminal cancer. And there's a couple common terms that I've heard again and again, which is, I think a lot of people just reply to anybody that has cancer, like you're so strong or you're such an inspiration. And I know some people are just kind of putting it out there because they don't know what else to say. Mm. But also I know that some people mean it in a very genuine fashion and they go on to explain exactly why and exactly what they mean by, by inspiration, things like that. And I'm always appreciative but I guess I don't look at myself that way. Like I said, people go, you're so strong. And I'm thinking in my mind, like, what's the alternative? Yeah. <laughs> Am I just going to you know, put the covers over my head and, and cry every day? I mean, is that what weakness is? Like, I think it's okay to be weak sometimes and be strong other times. Like, yeah, it's not something I'm trying to do. It's not something I find intrinsically um, attached to, to my persona. It's just, it's just, what else can I do? And in terms of being an inspiration, uh, I get that a lot. And, and when people apply it to this, this openness and honestness about my process, then I, I take that fully as a, as a wonderful compliment because that is something I'm, I'm kind of doing consciously to a certain extent. Um, but when people just say, oh, you're an inspiration because you're going through this. And it's like, nah, it's just, biology, man. It's just a bunch of cells. It's just cell, some cells are replicating and some cells aren't replicating. And, you know, it's not, uh, it's not, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a big inspiration in terms of people that, you know, go out there and do other things that are, that are heroic or whatever. But then, then other people remind me, you know, I've inspired people. I've changed their lives. I had an impact on their lives. And that, let me come back to the benefits is one of the hugest benefits of, being in the situation I'm in where people are talking to me very honestly because I'm talking to them very honestly and because I'm facing the end of my life. And they're saying things that I never would have believed about myself that people thought that way. And it's really a gift. It's really, really wonderful. When you think back on, cause we've, we've talked a bit about this and like giving you a bit of a different perspective, the, the diagnosis and the prognosis, what has that been like? If you reflect on your life. What are you, what are you feeling now? How do you, how do you feel on this life of Dr. Greg Bull? Well, I think everybody reacts a little bit differently. And I think the Hollywood way of dealing with it is I'm going to do all the things that I wanted to do or couldn't do. Now the pandemic puts a bit of a, 
uh, a damper on that, but you know, the, the, the movie, the bucket list, right. I'm going to, it became very popular in just in society after that. What's on my bucket list it became kind of a part of what, what I want to do before I kick the bucket and before I die. And so, Hey, that's limited time for me, but I do not treat it that way. I have done so many fantastic things and mm -hmm. been to so many cool places and met so many cool people that I don't look at it as like a checklist or a, you know, need to do these things. And so it's much more important for me to spend time with loved ones. And that's really about the only thing on my list, you know, try and try and stay positive, try and stay happy and healthy as I can. And, uh, and try and connect with, uh, with family and friends as much as I can. And I have, I think I've been pretty successful in that. And so that's, that's a huge, huge benefit. But looking back upon my life, I also don't kind of think of it that way uh, so much. Like I don't say, you know, have I accomplished what I want to? Have I, have I achieved enough? Like I think sometimes people can turn their life into a scoreboard or, or just a series of goals. And then, you know, then you're, you're, you're focused on the goal. You're focused on the scoreboard. You're not focused on the experience, on the, on the connections, on the people. And so I did do a lot of the things that I wanted to do. I got a PhD. Uh, I've taught evolutionary biology at some of the top schools in North America. I've been able to travel around the world. I've been super fortunate, super privileged. And so I have lived a life. You know, who, who's to say that an 80-year-old life is a better or worse life than a, than a 53-year-old life, 52-year-old life. We'll see if I make it to 53. So yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's a life and I'm, and I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty proud of it. Well, I mean, you know, Greg, you have been, you know, an inspiration. Uh, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't go to university for science. I got into science communication because scientists became my idols. You know, like they became the thing that I always wanted to be. And, you know, when I would see you, like you were someone that I really looked up to and someone that I really wanted to be. And I'm, you know, really honored to have met you. And I thank you for sharing your nerdery with us. Thank you. Well, I love you guys just as much. And that's another thing that I like try and do is express my love for people. Why are we scared of that? <laughs> Why are we scared of telling people that we love them? So the more love, the better. It's not something that takes away. It's something that gives. And so my involvement with Science Slam and Nerd Night and all the cool science people and science communicators around Vancouver have been such an important part of my life and, you know, really helped make it worthwhile and help, help me through some of the tougher times. So yeah, it's, it's more than just getting together and chatting about things. It's, it's making connections. And before we wrap up, bringing it all together, what do you, do you have any advice for the people <laughs> listening out there, the science communicators, the would be teachers, the big old science nerds, live your passion, share your passion and be compassionate and kind to others. That is a damn good way to live. I'll do my best. For everybody who's listening, if you would like to get in touch with Dr. Bull, we have Dr. Bull's email on our website uh, on the podcast page. So if you'd like to email Dr. Bull, just head over to the website and hit the podcast page. 
That's at Vancouver at nerdnight.com. If you want to hear more from us, you can also follow us on our socials at nerdnightyvr on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'll see you next time. Before you draw your terminal breath. Da-dum, 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 da-dum.